0: Good evening. So tonight I'd like to speak about um, identity formation and reformation. Some of you have um, been here for nearly six weeks uh, others uh, close to three months. And uh, from meeting with you individually and from some of the questions this morning, uh, there seems to be a sense that uh, some aspects of uh, yeah, a sense of self, Identity are re emerging and sometimes feeling unwelcome. Sometimes, when we are doing deep practice for a sustained uh, period of time, we uh, After a while, get a little break from some aspects of our experience, which uh, may have to do more with the uh, social realm, the realm of uh, our self and relationship. And even, you know, just though we have a a full week left of the retreat. uh, It sounds like there are certain thought patterns, uh, certain feelings that are um, coming up that maybe haven't come up for a while. Uh, Maybe a sense of uh, wanting to be paid attention to. Be noticed. It may be a, a sense of fear. It's just having to, to deal with other people's energies. It may be uh, a reemergence of judging. Um, but I've gotten a sense that uh, for many of you is uh, some aversion to this. Some sense of, "Oh, I, I kind of hoped that wouldn't come back. <laughs> I, and I thought maybe I was done with that. And part of the reason, this is uh, part of the reason sometimes the end of a retreat is such an auspicious time is actually we've developed a very powerful uh, continuity of mindfulness and concentration. And at the end of the, uh, towards the end of a retreat, as some of these patterns er emerge, there's an opportunity to, to, Meet them in a new way. It's just interesting to notice that we can go along. uh, Breathing in, breathing out, sensations in the body, arising and passing away, feelings arising, passing away, moods and emotions moving through, coming and going, thoughts in the mind. But somehow, there's certain ones that we stick to. We can be quite equanimous with all this coming and going for these uh, weeks or months. You've been hearing night after night in these teachings of uh, non-interference. Uh, that it doesn't matter what's arising, it's the relationship to it. And then all of a sudden, it's different. It feels different. There's something that arises that feels like, no, this is me. So let's explore again maybe as a refresher or an encouragement. What is this process of identification with momentary experience and the transformation of that into uh, an experience of identity? This is me. This is who I am. You're sitting. And maybe you're sitting in the dining hall and you notice uh, that you're judging everybody around you. For weeks, you haven't been paying attention. To anybody, but all of a sudden nobody else is doing anything right. Moving too slowly, taking too much food. Taking too little food. There's a contact with the sense door of seeing. A feeling arises. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In this case, probably unpleasant. Then the thought arises, whatever the judgment is. This person is such a dot, dot, dot. And the thought isn't Seen clearly with mindfulness. So there's a identification with this thought, this kind of believing it, it leads to a, a becoming. We become the judger. It's an interesting process, uh, subtle, but you can kind of feel it. Sometimes I I have to act it out physically to kind of uh, express it. It's really, it can happen in a moment with any kind of experience, that there's a identification with that, and then a movement into becoming the sad one, or becoming uh, the hopeless one, or becoming the judging one. And it really is a kind of a birth in the moment. Uh, I had this uh, experience very clearly on the bus in San Francisco, I live in the Bay Area, and I was sitting on the bus. Actually, I was going to teach a class so maybe a little extra mindful. Not mindful enough, actually. <laughs> Somebody gets on the bus uh, on the cell phone, talking extremely loudly. kind of yelling. <laughs> if I do say so myself <laughs> I was yelling. And I mean it was so loud. I'm quite tolerant of people talking on their cell phones it really bothers some people, but I mean, this was, and they sat down in this, of course, in the seat opposite for me. There was an aisle between us. And I just got into this whole internal monologue about this person. And I was really in it, how people should not do this. It's, it's not okay. It's unbelievably inconsiderate. Absolutely no awareness of others. And so I'm really in this uh, battle, all taking place inside me, of course. And you know, at that moment, there was a momentary resurgence of mindfulness which I think is the, f- the fruit of practice, you know. Uh, the chances are that it'll kick in sooner the more you're practicing. Yeah. So, thankfully, there was a moment of mindfulness, I just asked this question what's happening? And I sort of just traced, not consciously, just almost intuitively, just right back to the feeling tone. It was a very unpleasant feeling tone. And as I hung out with that feeling tone, just for a moment, my whole experience shifted. It was just an unpleasant feeling. All of a sudden I noticed I could, I was aware of the other people on the bus and of of the scenery moving by outside. I could hear sounds again. I hadn't noticed any of these things for the few minutes before that. And it was striking the difference. And I I realized it was a very clear example of how I, I really took birth in this, I was born into an identity of the irritated one. And as soon as I was born like that, I was in an exclusive relationship with this woman. And totally locked into it. And in the settling back into just what's happening, just the just the feeling tone of it out of the story, that relationship dissolved. Just a momentary experience, unpleasant. Then it was this sense of freedom. Of course, I could have then said something. I didn't need to. I actually appreciated what had happened. But it would have had a totally different tone than if I had said it a minute before. (laughs) That wouldn't have been good. You know? It's just... So it's just an interesting process to watch this sort of, moment-to-moment experience. You have enough, all of you have enough mindfulness, enough continuity to notice this. Just one experience after another, rising, rising. And then there's, a, there's one that there's a stickiness, and then there's a birth in an identity. One way of noticing this, which I find useful, and I really think of this as moment-to-moment rebirth. Yeah? As Andrea was talking uh, a few nights ago about dependent origination this is that yeah it is a moment to moment rebirth born into a momentary incarnation it's interesting cuz that incarnation it really it has a, it has a different body and you can sort of notice that when you're you know in a moment of embarrassment You you don't notice, not just mindful of the feeling, you become the embarrassed one. It's a very clear difference. The body totally changes. And then when you're born in that identity, you have to live out that incarnation, old age, sickness, and death. Remember that list? Sorrow, lamentation, all those good things you know, until the death of that incarnation. And then maybe they're just noticing for a while until the next one, or there's another one immediately. I, I notice this with fear a lot. It's, you know, you're walking and f- fear arises. And there's quite a distinction between just noticing fear, letting it be there fully, okay, fear, and taking birth as the afraid one. It has a center to it. And then that afraid one is in relationship to the uh, threatening, or scary others. So it's just an interesting question. What does it mean to not take birth? Not take birth in a limited identity in a moment. Sometimes people seem scary. Oh, would I disappear? No. It's very interesting to play with, is some identity view that does not appear. A limited sense of me. There's a lot more room, a lot more available. Uh, So, on hearing this, our natural inclination is not just to ask the question, but then to try not to take birth. We're really good at trying to do things and trying not to do things, but that's not really useful. Because we're taking birth all the time in these limited identities based on what's happening. Just causes and conditions coming together and we identify with it. But actually, this is a really rich ground for insight. Not just when you see something and don't identify it, but when you do identify with it. You're really coming to understand this mechanism Experientially. And, and as you consciously take birth again and again, moment after moment, or you, know, you can just reflect on how many uh, different incarnations you've had in the past uh, hour. or five minutes, or day. But when we allow ourselves to consciously, just to be there for, oh, this is what it's like to be the self-conscious one, or the notice me please identity. And then five minutes later, it's the, I'm the center of the universe. Everybody loves me. I love everyone. And then it's, I hate everyone. They happen very, they're so different. It's kind of amazing. We stop believing so wholeheartedly in the reality of any one of these incarnations. It's quite liberating. You actually don't have to prevent yourself from Taking birth is sort of a lightness that just naturally starts to happen around all of it. It's not so personal. Sometimes we going to take on a, you know, a certain kind of uh, identity uh, because we're practitioners, or we're identifying with some of the "quote-unquote" positive, wholesome mind states which arise, maybe which arise here. You know. And You're certainly hearing a lot about them from the teachers, loving kindness, mudita, compassion. And you may feel these at times quite strongly. And it can be easy for the mind to For us, let's say, to start to identify with those. Oh, I, now I'm a yogi. I'm a loving person. All beings, let's liberate them. <laughs> you know? uh, everybody's so wholesome here, you know, and. And then, you know, somebody walks by and there's just a ruthless judgment, you know, (laughs) (laughs) cut, and then then there's an identity crisis. Wait a minute, I'm a loving person. Haven't I been practicing that for months or years? ah, I'm a terrible yogi. This is just a sign that I'm never going to change. I'm always going to be that person that I've always been. And it's it's just interesting to notice this. One part of the mind looking at another. The the really wholesome me looking at the really petty me. And there's a conflict. But this practice is not about being any kind of person. Love is there. Wonderful. But we can also build a me out of that. We can build a me out of insight. We can build a me around an experience of selflessness. It's, it's amazing. And you can just watch the mind do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And the Buddha, you know, in the, in the discourses, there's some great suttas uh, where the Buddha talks about people saying, you know, I am at peace, I'm very selfless, I have realized Nibbana. You know, he, and he, the Buddha points out, there's still some clinging here. Yeah. But, but the idea is not to build an identity around any experience. That's where freedom lies, there's a capacity uh, uh, aspect of what we are that actually holds all of the opposites, all the paired opposites, liking and not liking, Loving and hating. uh, Joy and sadness. You know, all these things that we, in our uh, ordinary experience, like to pair against each other. Either I'm nice or I'm not nice. You know, and in that kind of thinking, it has to be one. Which one is it? You know, and what about the mind that Holds both yeah, equally and isn't either. So it's just something to look for uh, in your own experience. You know, over these next days, uh, it's really exciting. I think, you know, that all of these habits of mind reemerge. They may not all reemerge, but some do. It's wonderful. It's it's uh, it's a ground for real practice. Yeah, and it's a big a big shift happens when you can start to get happy about seeing uh, patterns in the mind clinging. Identification. Uh, this is a kind of dharma joy, in just wow! What, look at that. Uh, how did that happen? Look at that. You know, even just watching, you can just watch the movement of mind. <laughs> huh? Or just having a very powerful experience as sitting with it teacher once, and they were talking to a group, and I noticed there was something in me kind of pulling for their attention. It was like leaning, trying to get it. And for some reason, the mind was very still that day. I could see that it was just very obvious, that movement. And just in the seeing of it, this is great, there's a settling back and this great spaciousness there. Oh. It's, it's clear there's no need to go anywhere, get anything. So, So in a way, you know, I'd have really just, and this is the same instruction you've been hearing again and again, just invite you to really Meet what's arising huh? with interest and the quality of uh, investigation, not to figure out, but just to, you know, this is how this is watch identity be formed. I mean, this is the core of the Buddhist teaching. Hmm. This is where it all. Happens, freedom and bondage, just in these moments. And it, you know, it doesn't... um, You know, we all have our favorites in terms of what we like to identify with as me. You know, our our top ten me things or stories, and so you can just maybe notice a, few, a one or a few of them that come up a lot in these next days, and just pay attention to that. Yeah. I'm gonna say something twice now, because I think it's important. Freedom does not depend on, let me see if I can phrase this right, something not being there. We all, it's so deeply ingrained that we think there's something that's happening that needs to not be here in order for me to be free. Whether it's judgments, whether it's an emotion, a feeling, whether it's an a, a energy block. And it's just so deeply ingrained that we, that, that needs to go before freedom can be there, but it's not true. It's only in the identification with it and the grasping that uh, bondage is created. We have a, a prison then of certain dimensions. Yeah? And it could be a big, spacious prison, you know, like, it could be a nice prison, like, I'm very loving. Or, I'm a really generous person. Or, it could be a really That's sort of like a high class prison. (laughs) It's one of those like uh, minimum security places where you have like a couch and you have unlimited TV and it's comfortable. You know, or you could have a, and, and this could change from moment to moment, it's not like you only have one. You know, or you can have a really hardcore, maximum security and you know, I'm worthless or I'll never amount to anything, prison in a moment. I'm unworthy, something fundamentally wrong with me. You know, that's like really, you get none of the kind of um, comforts in that prison, but it has its advantages. That one, the the motivation for escape is quite high. You know, <laughs> in the high class prison, less motivation. You know. Um, the thing about these prisons, though, is that the bars are illusory. They actually have no substance. That's just. Uh, I just feel like I'm saying just. Okay. I want to illustrate the fact that it's not a substantial thing that's keeping us in prison. It's an important point. But when I say just, it almost seems like, well, why not just walk out then? It doesn't, and as you all know, it doesn't work that way. But... Just through seeing... Uh, these bars can uh, fall away, or it doesn't matter that they're there because there's no one behind them. I'm not located inside. So we have all kinds of identities. We have, <clears throat> you know, roles that we play in our lives. You know, we have career or, you know, I'm a lawyer or I'm a carpenter or I'm a plumber or I'm a doctor or I'm a teacher, <clears throat> mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister. And there's nothing you know wrong with that. It's good to know what your role is in the moment. They're also kind of momentary identities. It's good for us to remember that. If I go home and I'm the teacher it's not so good. <laughs> it's that's not That's not the role, you know, with my wife or with my son. It could be in moments. Even just thinking of these identities, yeah. Where do they exist? Just in this moment. Where do all of these identities exist? They exist as memory, experientially, as a thought in the mind. They're not here. Without thinking about the past in this moment, without imagining a future in this moment. What is here? Who are you? You didn't disappear, did you? there may not be a sense of me in the <clears throat> conventional way, ordinary way. And it's interesting, even kind of personality wise or persona, you know, sort of sometimes we have a persona. Sometimes we have some different personas, Or one way with one group of people, another way in another group. And it's interesting, I read this once, and I hope it's true. <laughs> that the root of the word persona has a Greek root, and it has something to do with peering through. And it had, had to do with kind of the masks that actors wore, used in these old Greek plays. And this is a peering through the mask. You know, the mask had changed. It's not your identity. And as I, I think of these roles and kind of conventional uh, roles that we identify with, or even persona, just as they don't need to go away. But it's a question of knowing, remembering. This is not what we are. This is not who we are in any ultimate way. We can't be contained by any of these identities. They're so limited. And what we are is vast, much vaster. And you might even notice just in moments of not identifying as a this or a that. There's still something here. Maybe not even calling it a, calling it a thing might not even be right. But that there's a lot more available in terms of stuff, resources, choices, Factors, fact, there's, you know, uh, it's hard to describe, but all of a sudden, So much more is available, freedom of movement, freedom of action, freedom of expression, We can become very identified with some of the states that arise in long-term meditation. We can get very identified with concentration, attached to it. And as the container changes, it can be this kind of disconcerting. And. But the freedom that the Buddha was talking about does not depend on any conditions. So, in a way, uh, you know, the I guess the way I hold these retreats, you know, even if it's a long retreat, like a three-month retreat, in a way, when we're following this path, you know, we need to have a very, very uh, long view. It's useful, a long-term view. And it's not that freedom resides at the end of this long-term view. It's that I think that over time, the practice, rather than being something discreet that we do and just set special times and circumstances like retreat, it becomes a, a way, just a way of living, a way of being, and the form changes. You know, sometimes it's silent and it's structured retreat. sometimes you're fully in the world, but the practice fundamentally doesn't change at all. And the question is, are we really using what's arising for our own liberation? are we choosing to look? Hmm? And it's very useful that the shape changes because then new stuff arises that we haven't had a chance to look at. There's a discourse in the middle length discourses of the Buddha, uh, sort of a funny discourse I think where Um, there's this wealthy uh, laywoman, Mistress Vedika, and she is sort of known throughout the town for being kind and uh, caring. She has a very good reputation. And her servant, who's named Kali, uh, is sort of suspicious of this reputation. And so she thinks to herself, she says, you know, I... my mistress doesn't get angry uh, much, but I wonder if that's because there's no anger in her. I think it might be just because I, I always do my work really well. I come on time. So I wonder what would happen if I didn't do my work so well and I didn't come on time. I wonder how kind and patient she'd be then. So she and the next day, she woke up late and came in, and you know, and this woman, Mistress uh, Vedika, kind of laid into her. You know, she was upset and uh, yelled at her. And so she says, "Uh huh, there's, there's some anger in there." And the next day, she gets up even later. You know. And Mistress Vedika is even more pissed. And the following day, she gets up even later. And when when her you know when Mistress Vedika asks her why did you get up late, she said, oh, you know, is anything wrong? No, nothing's wrong. <laughs> yeah. she's not apologizing. So this third time, Mistress Vedika flies into a rage, and takes a, a rolling pin and whacks her on the head with it. And She's cut, and she runs out into the town, announcing to everybody that hey, Mistress Vedika is not as—I uh, think one of the words she uses—she's merciless. <laughs> yeah. But part of the message in the story is that there's certain habits of mind that don't arise when the conditions are a particular way, when they're favorable yeah in the teaching they call these the latent defilements, yeah. and you know we can all kind of empathize with Mistress Vedic, I think, yeah, there are these moments when where did that come from so. Um, get happy about seeing these things. That's the path. The path is not somewhere else. When you're seeing unfreedom, you're working towards freedom. If you just, you know, if you're, Somebody, you know, the of course, this is the Buddhist time. We don't have servants. But, you know, if the servant in the situation oh, is always coming on time, Mistress Vedika never gets to see that she's, you know. So it's wonderful that conditions are changing like this. As we get to see all these places we identify and get stuck and we begin to have a chance to get free, to identify less. And in some other traditions, they, they sort of change things up on you on purpose to kind of bring out these attachments. What you find is you don't even need to do that. If you're just sitting with reality for long enough, you know, we cling to this, we cling to that, because things are impermanent, reality Works on your preferences plenty, right? Or we just start to let go naturally. Because we, we just can't make things the way we want them in the world, even in our own minds. I remember, well, let's see. I just remember early on in my practice, I kind of. I often felt like I was building something up, like a building concentration. And, you know, so it's almost like building a house of cards. You know, it was really precarious and you're kind of trying and, and then it would all fall apart. Interestingly, when it all fell apart, that's when meditation happened. It was just, oh. I can't control my mind. And then all of a sudden, it's just what's happening. Now, this happens over and over again in various ways as we practice reality working on us. As long as we're in touch with what's what is, this um, the path is unfolding. Our intuitive wisdom is, you know, we're clinging and we're suffering from the clinging, so we're naturally letting go. And some of these other traditions, you know, I uh, sat a number of retreats with a, a Chan master uh, from Taiwan named Sheng Yen. And... Um, sort of one of these, Chan is a Chinese Zen, and uh, he's passed away uh, not too long ago, but um, I sort of have this fierceness about uh, changing things up on you and not letting you settle into a comfortable place. Yeah. So what I was reading in his autobiography but how when he was with his first master, his master said, okay, you can stay in this room here in the temple. And as soon as he got his stuff all organized, his master said, you know what? Why don't you stay in this bigger room? There's a library there. You can, he was a scholar. You can study. You'll have a lot of time to read. So He moves all his stuff into that room. Later that day, he says, you know what? On second thought, actually, I think it'd be better if you're in the first room. (laughs) He goes back to the first room. Yeah. And then, you know what? The next day, actually, you really should study. I want you to be a scholar. I want you to produce good things for the temple. You know. He's there for a couple hours. We're having a guest coming. You better move to the other room. <laughs> you know. And, yeah, and he argued with his master. You know, sort of. He said, and the way he describes, it, he said, you know, as soon as he let go. The master stopped moving him. As soon as he. he But that, I mean, this, we can all relate to this, right? So sometimes this insight's happening on the subtle level. Sometimes it's happening in this very, you know, like this level, just moving rooms. It's doing the same thing. Yeah? We naturally getting less identified with a particular condition, less dependent on it, less needing to land anywhere, not needing to abide in any one place. Just another just a little anecdote about Master Sheng Yin. I, I had this experience on a retreat, you know, that I I sort of thought was really something. And I I told him about it. And he said he said, what you experienced was thought farting. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard that one before. (laughs) Let go. This is a very precious time I just encourage you to really make use of it, you know, not in a, you know, tight, striving way. Holding this long-term view is, I think it's just more correct. Yeah. But just in the simple way of curious, interested in, uh, And what's happening here. All of the freedom, all of the understanding, it just comes out of that. I have a, there's a great poster I saw once and uh, it's got one of these beautiful uh, Zen circle paintings, it's a beautiful circle and it says, never forget the thousand year view. Mm-hmm. Let's just uh, sit for a moment.